listening to Love and Science here on BCFM with me, Andrew Glester, and I'm joined in the studio, as always, by Hannah Bestwick. Hello, Hannah, how are you? Hiya, good, thank you. How are good. you? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay, thanks. If I start coughing, um, yeah, it's just because I'm coughing, that's yeah. the reason. Um, but yes, no, I'm okay. I, 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 I'm a bit disappointed because I missed an event uh, last night that you went to. Oh, yeah. I, well, I saw, um, saw a screening of Edward Scissorhands in oh. the Redcliffe Caves. It was part of the Bristol Film Festival. Yeah. It was really good. It was really exciting. It was all, um, they had some kind of smoke machine going on and lots oh, of red cool. lighting and things. And the film, I saw it once when I was younger, when I was babysitting, I think it was on TV. And I thought it was really weird. But I saw it now as an adult human yeah. and I thought it was hilarious. I really liked it. Yeah. I haven't seen that for ages. I wish I'd known that was on. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I'm, I, 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 I remember it being a lot of fun. Anyway, this is a science show. We should yes, s- let's not sorry. talk about Edward Scissorhands. There's no I science mean, in it, is there? He's kind of, uh, he's sort of a robot and uh, like yeah. automaton sort of thing. So there's that, I guess. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and we're odd and he's odd. And exactly. We, we, ho- we hope to be accepted in society one day rather like him. Anyway, um, we are here. Unfortunately, Malcolm Love is not with us today. He is on his way back from Qatar, where I believe he's been trying to fix the stadiums ahead of the World Cup. And uh, he keeps going there to do that, and he's still not finished, as far as I know. I know he's not been doing that. He's been talking to people about how to talk about science, I think, probably. Yeah, I Um, think so. But we're here, and uh, what's also here, in apparently some cases increasing numbers, is red squirrels. Good segue. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so there's been um, some scientists at the University of Aberdeen have been looking into what impact... Um, populations of pine martens will have on red squirrel populations. Um, pine martens are um, a member of the mustelids, I think, which includes like badgers and weasels and things like that. And they're about cat-sized, and they are known to prey on squirrels. Um, okay. But they're uh, a native species that they're trying to reintroduce. Sorry, yeah, you were going to say that, just, that seems like bad news for squirrels. Well, the- yeah, you'd think so. Yeah. But not... As bad news for red squirrels as for grey squirrels, it turns out. So they've been having a look at um, how these three different populations, red squirrels, grey squirrels and pine martens, interact with each other in a forest um, and what impact uh, the reintroduction of the predator will have on both the red squirrels and the grey squirrels. And what it turns out is that where there are higher populations of, um, sorry, larger populations of pine martens, the populations of red squirrels are higher as well. So they're doing better where pine martens are present. Right. And what they think might be going on is that grey squirrels, having not evolved and and, um, existed around pine martens for most of their life, because they're an introduced species, and the pine pine martens just in the UK, um, is that the grey squirrels don't have a lot of behaviours that help them avoid the pine martens. So grey squirrels spend a lot of time on the floor and lower down on trees, the red squirrels don't. And that makes them much easier prey for the pine martens that... They can climb trees very well, but they do spend a lot of time on the floor as well. Okay. Because my first thought was a, a red squirrel's not as tasty as, as green squirrels. <laughs> They're also smaller, so maybe they just get a bigger meal from a grey squirrel if they do catch one. Yeah. Maybe. Now, I, you know, people people are quite cross about grey squirrels, particularly people who like red squirrels. Yeah. I like grey squirrels. What do you like um, about I, them? Well, I was sitting in my uh, in my house the other day, yeah. looking out in the garden. I was actually looking at the pond because it's this time of year where the, the frog chorus is happening. We're not yep. going to play the song. Don't okay. worry. You don't need to choose. 
tune out. And uh, there's, if you see the pond, uh, anyone who's got a pond that's got frogs in it, if you look out of your, of your window, because mm-hmm. if you go outside, they'll hide. But if uh, <laughs> in, in our pond, if I look out the window, it's it's like um, it's like a jacuzzi in there because there's so much activity with the frogs <laughs> going on. I don't say what yeah. they're doing, but it's, it's a lot of activity with the frogs. So I was watching the activity of them making frog spawn and um if you, you imagine me as a sort of you know david attenborough rather than anything else okay sure, and yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, and then a, a, a gray squirrel came bounding across the trees yeah and that's an exciting sound happening yeah well no it stopped okay okay never mind uh, that's interesting um and uh, and the squirrel came to the edge of one of the tree and then just stopped still for a moment mm-hmm. and then leapt with all of its legs out <laughs> like a, I don't know, like a flying squirrel, yeah. really, and leapt quite some distance into the tree next to it, whereupon it stumbled a bit, managed to grab onto a branch and didn't fall into the pond and carry on. It was one of the most wonderful things I've seen in, uh, in outside the back door of my house. And I think we should, we, we're too harsh on grey squirrels. They provide a lot of fun for people to watch in their gardens. They're quite entertaining. They're incredibly good um, puzzle solvers. So I think we talked about an article a few weeks back about yeah. the fact that, that grey squirrels do have a much higher success rate than, than red squirrels in solving complex puzzles, which might make them better at foraging or getting food out of bird feeders and things like that. Um, they are really entertaining, but they do they do compete with a lot of our native um, species and sort of push them out a little bit. They're aggressive and big, and they do very well. And it's not their fault; they're just trying to survive. Mm. Um, but yeah, I can. Yeah, it's a fu- that's a funny term as well for me. That native species. Mm. It's just surely that's just the time period. That yes. you're thinking of. the most recent ones. Yes, it's like sort of before that they weren't here. After that they were. You know, <laughs> if you if you took this point now, mm. you would say that grey squirrels were native to yeah. this land. If you took the point before grey squirrels came here, you wouldn't. You know, do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's I just, think the main uh, issue people have with it is that that it was introduced through human migration. Right, they wouldn't have got here if we hadn't just like if they hadn't stowed away on boats and shipped themselves over. The same with rats going onto islands that don't have any... They have lots of birds but no natural predators and the rats eat all the eggs and the birds have a very horrible time. The rats wouldn't have been there to be like on their own okay um, well okay so i see that when there's a knock-on effect which is negative for other parts yeah. of the ecosystem i see an issue with it but if it's just literally that they're native and not doing as well then i yeah. don't see that that's a reason for them to stay just because they're native mm. do you know what i mean i mean i'm talking about animals and also people and <laughs> um now one uh, area of people is uh, where the survival of the fittest is particularly uh, interesting is in the Olympics. And of course... Do you think it's a fight to the death there? It's not. It's survival in the competition (laughs) rather than in life. Okay. Okay. Uh, Well, you know, they could have a bad accident, but let's hope they don't. The the Winter Paralympics are happening at the moment. Mm -hmm. And friend of the show... Bristol University nanoscientist Maddie Nichols is over there. Um, she has been sent over to the Paralympics to look into and help with um, the prosthetic limbs and things that are being made that are broken during the Games, so fixing them and mending them to help the athletes. I caught up with her before she went to have a chat about what she'd be doing. So I've been chosen by the Bristol Centre for Functional Nanomaterials, which is my PhD programme. Um, I've been chosen to represent them and Bristol um, in 
South Korea at the Paralympic Games. And we're going to visit and stay with Otto Bock, who are world-leading orthopaedic specialists. And we're going to help them out repairing different gear that comes into the workshop. If it gets broken or warped at some point during athletes' training. And then uh, you're there for the whole of the, the, the Paralympic Games? Yeah, yeah, all the way through to the closing ceremony. So I guess you don't really know what you're going to be doing, what you're going to be fixing, because you don't know what's going to break. Yeah, I have no idea. But I mean, I've been Googling sort of winter prosthetics and looking at all the different bits and bobs that these athletes use. And some of the gear itself is just phenomenal, like engineering feet, because, you know, they're sitting on like hydraulic um, things and skiing down. And like, it's just mad that they're doing the same events that are in the Olympics. Despite having all these disabilities. What I don't understand, nano, incredibly small, what's that got to do with fixing big orthopaedic athletic (laughs) stuff? Yeah, so I would agree with you. Um, So nano is super tiny, like a thousand times smaller than the width of a piece of hair. Um, So I spend a lot of my day in a lab mixing things together and forming nano-sized stuff. Um, So yeah, it's quite far removed from what I actually do on a day-to-day basis. Um, But I think the the link with some of the work that people do in Bristol on this PhD programme is that some people look into materials. So I'm technically working on a material which is a lot bigger than nano, it doesn't, di- um, it doesn't relate directly um, to my specific work, um, but I know Rafa, who's also going, um, is looking at developing different materials that could be used in prosthetics. So it's kind of a good fit for him, and I've just been lucky, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get selected then? What was the process? So about six weeks ago, we got an email saying that they had this opportunity to go work at the Paralympic Games. And obviously, I was like, uh, yes, hello. Uh, I think I've been sitting waiting for this to come into my inbox for a little while. Um, so yeah, I hadn't heard of the company, but I watched this promo video that they have, um, which was like a, one of the Paralympic athletes going into the workshop and being like, hey, what are you guys doing? And I guess it was just a an area that I'd never really thought of being there. And I guess that at the Paralympics particularly, it's very important for the gear to be working because obviously they rely on it to just get around (laughs) before they've even got onto skis or whatever. And I think the Winter Paralympic stuff is very interesting. Um, Anyway, I've digressed slightly. So the application process was basically like, here's some questions, and it was, what skills do you have? Um... Why, like, how would you be a good representative and uh, how would this work contribute to your PhD? Um, so we all had to submit answers to that and then I'm assuming that most people on the programme applied. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I got lucky with my <laughs> spinning of different things, <laughs> seeing as my work is not directly related. <laughs> it's incredibly exciting and um, I think we're going to have loads more questions for you after you come back so will you come and join us in the love and science studio when you come i would love to that would be awesome excellent <laughs> well have a wonderful time when you're out there and uh yeah think will you get to enjoy the snow and stuff when you're there uh yeah i think so yeah i think i think we should have an opportunity to get outside and play around in the snow i'm definitely going to suggest a snowball fight 
Uh, that's the wonderful Maddie Nichols talking to us about that wonderful work she's doing at the Paralympics. And she'll be back with us in the Love and Science studio <clears throat> Excuse me, when she comes back from uh, the games over there. We are often generally brilliant, but from time to time we say things and we think, oh, maybe we shouldn't have said that, or maybe we got it slightly wrong, or maybe we need to find out more. And last week... We talked about a story where some scientists, uh, Pavel Goldstein and colleagues, had been doing an experiment where they'd looked into uh, people holding hands and the effect that couples with who showed more empathy uh, holding hands with each other would lessen the pain felt by one of the, 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 the couple. Yeah. And we had a chat about it here in the studio. And... Um, we had mixed feelings, it's safe to say. Yeah, I most like I mostly had mixed feelings about the. So the article we read was a press release. We didn't read the uh, the research articles. The the way the press release was worded, um, it left a lot of information out. It wasn't very clear um, on some things, and I think it was a little bit misleading in in um, in some respects. So, in order to rectify some of the some of the missing information, you emailed him <laughs> and made him listen to the show where I said I didn't understand. I t I, to be fair, I agreed with you. So it's not yeah. all on you. Okay, cool. Um, and yeah, no, Pavel has replied. And I think, I think it's, it's fair, isn't it? I mean, if we've put something out there, yeah. we, we should give him the right to reply. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, he has replied. And I'll read some of, of what he said. Um, I have to say, there's that sound again. I have to say that uh, Pavel is... Um, well, his reply is excellent. Mm. It's quite sciencey at times, so I might just pause to, to uh, explain little bits of it, yeah. a little bit of what I like to call Andrew-splaining. So um, he says, thanks very much for your attention on the research. I understand it's not easy to judge the study. But first of all, I wanted to clarify that the main goal of this study is to test brain-to-brain -brain communication during pain and the effect of social touch in this situation. Now, that's not too sciencey, but what he means is people holding hands. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> for spelling that out for me. No problem, no problem. I wasn't for you. Now it really is mansplaining. Right, okay. But, but the study is not focusing on the analgesic effects of touch. Now, analgesic means... Yeah, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah, you looked it up. What does it mean? No, I did not look it up. Oh, I did. <laughs> Sorry, you tell me. Okay, oh, I did. Okay. So, analgesic means the lessening of pain. Ah, okay. So, what it means is they're feeling less pain. Okay. Um, actually, we showed this effect in our first study two years ago, where also partners' empathy correlated the lessening of pain only when they were touching. However, partners' intimacy wasn't related to the pain reduction in our next publication. And that's one of them screaming now. And we showed that the couples with a higher empathic partner demonstrated increased touch-related breath and heart rate synchrony during pain. So the, what they showed was that the, the people who were more empathetic had their brain waves and their heart rate synchronized more when they were holding hands yeah when one of them was undergoing pain. and that is interesting because that does address what i said um last week where i said it didn't it didn't mention anything about what kind of relationship those two people had and it's saying that it doesn't really matter how intimate they are or how, what kind of relationship they have so long as they are the, the more empathetic a person they are in general the better the synchronization will be 
Okay. I, I, you know, I think he's, argue, he's, he's answered it well. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, the other thing, one of the other things which we didn't really know an awful lot about, which he's clarified, is about the control. Yeah. Perhaps you could tell us about scientific control just a little bit for people who don't know about that. Um, I guess I probably could give that a go. <laughs> um, essentially, when you're doing a, a study, you want to control as many aspects of the environment or the, the subject or... Um, sort of what what you're putting in to the experiment so that you know that there might there's there's a limited amount of things that can be affecting the result okay so you if you can control everything that goes in you know that the only thing that could be affecting the result was what you wanted to measure in the end yeah because yeah. there's a lot of this kind of correlation and causation thing where people think just because two things are happening at the same time that they are linked but that doesn't yeah. necessarily make sense because it could be all sorts of factors that are outside of what you're trying to measure yeah absolutely okay so um pavel says this is hyperscanning, which he goes on to explain, okay, cool. is a method by which multiple subjects interact with, each other, interact with each other whilst their brains are simultaneously being scanned. So their, their brains are being scanned. It's not they're all, not all having to go into an MRI scanner to do it. They can actually scan their brains while they're interacting. So that's quite a good mm. uh, measurement of what so would happen in reality. It's one of those reality. caps that they put on you, perhaps. I guess so. Yeah. Um, uh, the idea being that they're trying to uh, get as close as they can to real-life social situations. Um, he then says that originally they planned to cut the partner's hands and take their brains out for the study control, but this was blocked by the ethical committee. And then he says, just kidding. <laughs> had you? <laughs> um, got me there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had me. I, I, I was a bit confused. And um, in order to validate our findings, we used five control conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and to his best of his knowledge, none of the hyperscanning studies used as many as that before. So this study has both ecological validity, it's close to real life situations, and also a good control for alternative explanations. And our findings in the main condition that includes pain and partner's hand-holding are above and beyond all control conditions. So that's good. That's good stuff. Yeah. Um, The other point that we had was that um, all the partners in the group were same-sex couples. No. They were not same-sex oh, couples. They weren't at <laughs> they all. They were the opposite of they that. Were there, yes, they were not same-sex couples. <laughs> there were no same-sex couples <laughs> at all. Yeah. They were all man-woman partnerships. Yeah. And he says that uh, this is purely because this is the first study and they will go on to, or studies, further studies can be done to explore those things. Satisfied? Yes. Okay. With slight hesitation. No, I am satisfied. I just... I. I would be excited to see what the further studies reveal because that is really interesting. And like you said, it isn't, they're not just going to go on and look at uh, same sex couples, they're also going to look at just um, like what's the term for friendship? <laughs> friendship, let's just yeah, say this friendship. Yeah, it's just friendships yes. and partnerships that don't, don't involve romance or yeah. sexuality, um, which then builds on what we were saying about how interesting it would be to see the effect of just general physical touch on people's well-being, regardless of who it comes from. Okay. It's going to be good. Yeah, that's good. Well, listen, 
Pavel Goldstein, thanks so much for talking to us. Uh, sending us the word and talk to us. Thanks Platonic to was the word, yeah. sorry. Uh, that's the word. That's the word. Amazing. Um, he, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really nice for him to, to get in yeah, touch. Yeah, really nice. And, and so quickly as well. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's an interesting study yeah. and uh, good controls. Well done, Pavel. <laughs> um, somebody else who I think we should give a right of reply to is Peter Beck, who is the man who is, he's sort of like... I don't think he'd like this comparison, but he's sort of like the Elon Musk of New Zealand. He is the head of Rocket Lab, Mm. which is a rocket company uh, in New Zealand, which sends, starting this year, is sending out a rocket a week into space, launching satellites and... Uh, other space things into space. One of the things that he's launched into space is the humanity star. We talked about it a few weeks ago. Uh, we had some questions about it. We're going to address some of those questions with Peter Beck because I had a chance to speak to him. And Peter will explain what the humanity star is. And as soon as the computer starts working. The humanity star was a project that, that I wanted to do for, for many, many years. In fact, you know, a fair chunk of my life. It all kind of stems back to a couple of things. If you if you ask the general population uh, where they live, they can tell you what city they live, they can tell you what you know block they live in and, and what country they live in. Hopefully they can tell you what planet they live on. But um, you go much past that and the vast majority of people can't tell you or name the planets in our solar system. For me, it was always, you know, looking up into space was, was, was always something that, that, that as a lot of space people do, just, you know, something that was a part of your life. The, the whole point of Humanity Star was, was really to get people outside and get people looking up and realising that they are on this little rock in, in a giant universe and hopefully get people thinking, you know, a little bit more uh, broadly and, and widely and thinking bigger about the world they live in. You know, as a species, we're facing some pretty decent challenges. One country is not going to solve climate change. We're going to have to come together as a species. And if we take it to the extreme, you know, six billion years left to run on the sun, at some point, this is not going to be the place that we're going to be. Really, really the whole point was to start the conversation, get people outside, the people outside who wouldn't normally go outside, and get them to look for the humanity star, and hopefully in looking for the humanity star, look past that, and, and into the universe and start asking the big questions. So that's his explanation of why he's doing the Humanity Star. So the Humanity Star is this geodesic ball. It's a disco ball, really. <laughs> a glitter ball in space, which reflects light back to Earth. And one of the um, criticisms, particularly from the astronomy community, and perhaps here in the Love and Science studio, was that it would maybe interrupt with astronomy observational astronomy that was going on here on Earth. So I put that to Peter, and this is what he said. It's, it's deliberately placed in an, in an orbit um, such that uh, you really need to be looking down on the horizon at dawn and dusk. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's not this giant shiny thing brighter than the moon, you know, piercing above your head. Um, you really, you, you need to really hunt out for it. And that was kind of the point is we wanted, we wanted people to go and look for it. So they, you know, in looking for it, they actually get to see the universe that's around it. So um, if you want to see the Humanity Star, then, um, uh, you know, if you go to the website, it'll tell you um, where, where it will be um, from your area. And we're still refining the algorithm, so that'll continue to improve accuracy. But um, where you're going to see it is at dawn and dusk down on the horizon, and you'll see it um, a couple of flashes. Okay. And that will distinguish itself from... Um, from a, a, a normal star. Okay, so it'd be like a, 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 an iridium flare type flash? Is that what I should be looking for? 
Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So it's it'll be um, you know very short. Um, the iridium flare actually flares actually last a bit longer. It's it's a you know a short little flash. Okay. So an iridium flare is a, 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 a refli- light reflecting off a particular type of satellite, and that's the kind of thing you might see uh, if you want to see one of those type iridium flare into Google or your favourite search engine, and you'll find ways of finding uh, those particular things. If you want to find the Humanity Star, you can go to humanitystar.com, and there's ways of finding it there as well. One of the other criticisms that was made about the uh, Humanity Star was that it might... Uh, contribute to space junk this huge amount of stuff that we've put out into space that's could possibly if you've seen the film gravity um you'll know about this but uh, it could possibly lead to something called the kessler syndrome which was where one small piece of debris collides with another which collides with another which collides with another and all of a sudden you have a domino effect and everything starts getting wiped out in space and obviously that's a concern I put it to Peter. Well, I mean, you have to go through a whole licensing process, both in the US and New Zealand. So it had it had to had to be bought off by the, both the New Zealand government and and a whole lot of licensing processes. And um, you know, we're we're very careful to make sure that we put it into an orbit, um, a very short lifetime orbit, um, and uh, you know, it put it in a place where it you know it, it wasn't it wasn't going to be. Um, you know, cause you know great issues to to anybody. But you know, to put into context, that the whole reason was to get get people discussing and talking about um, the bigger issues for humanity. And you know, although like I say, it's missed the mark for some people, um, they still are talking. Um, it's it's mission success. And uh, and you know, if the conversation is you know, we really don't don't like the humanity star, and um, you know, it's supposed to help us think about uh, you know hum- humans as a species. Well, the fact that that has even come up in the conversation is is um, is a definition of of, of success. Yeah. You know, we had the option of putting up a mass simulator that did absolutely nothing, um, and that's typically what what uh, you do in a first launch vehicle. Um, or the option of doing something that um, that you know will have an effect to um, a large a large portion of the population and something that the whole planet can can share in. So you know, in that respect. Um, you know, we, we use the payload um, wisely, but uh, you know, we, we can't we can't just put it any old where. You know, it was very very carefully placed, um, all through the the right regulations to ensure that um, that uh, you know it, would, it wouldn't cause any any of those kinds of effects. And it's a very short term life. You know, it's only up there for nine months. Um, you know, uh, we, we put into context with um, with with the, you know. SpaceX's launch on a billion-year lifetime—it's um, a—it's—it's—it's it's, a—it's a very short, you know, glinting moment in in, in Earth's history. Mm. And uh, like I say, if it is, if we if we change just a few people's perspective, they may be the few people that are the world leaders in the future that have a, have a big effect. I'm sold. And uh, thank you so much to Peter Beck for talking to us here on Love and Science, BCFM Radio. If you want to hear the rest of that conversation, actually, it's on my podcast, The Cosmic Shed. Now, soon, the old Chinese space station, Tiangong-1, I think it's called, is going to re-enter Earth's atmosphere. Some people are worried about that. Find out if you should be. After this, from Giorgio Moroder, clue. You shouldn't.
we're talking about science in the news, science behind the news, and some science that we might have got a little bit wrong in the past. But we're putting <laughs> it right now, so it's okay. Um, you know, we were just hearing from uh, Peter Beck from mm. Rocket Lab. He, uh, he had that idea for the company, to set up Rocket Lab. The idea of Rocket Lab is not to send, obviously, as he was saying, not to send disco balls into space. That was just a p- payload. They needed a test payload rather than it being a piece of concrete. He launched a something which might make us think about our place in the universe. I'm okay with that. But he had this idea to launch, affordably launch uh, small satellites and science into space. And he was a man who had the ideas, he had the know-how, he didn't have the money. He needed the money. He was listening to the radio, and there was a man on the radio who had the money and was talking on the radio. He was a billionaire. He's talking about a tech billionaire. He's talking about his love of space. And... Um, Peter Beck got in touch with him, told him the idea, and that's where the money came from for Rocket Lab, Peter Beck's company. Now, the man who Peter heard on the radio is beautifully named, I'm not lying, this is honestly his name, Mark Rocket. (laughs) That's amazing. That's a beautiful, beautiful way for that story to have ended. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Um, So, yeah, thanks very much to Peter Beck uh, for talking to us and to Mark Rocket for being so beautifully named and also having the money to make that wonderful science happen in space. <laughs> now, some science which is coming back to space, from space rather, is Tiangong-1, the Chinese space station. Mm. And it's about to, uh, it was launched in 2011, I think, and uh, it's no longer operational. And it's starting to, well, it's not starting to, uh, it's very nearly coming back at some point uh, towards the end of march in the middle of april it's going to hit earth's atmosphere and come back to earth and it's a it's a big old thing this space station and if you look in the press you look in um certain newspapers with daily in the title then you'll see concerning um stories about this terrible piece of space junk that's coming back down to earth should we all be worried about it um hannah what do you think should we be worried about it i i'm not particularly worried about it one space station over all of the surface of the earth i'm not i don't feel that likely to be hit okay um but it is it is like 8.5 tons apparently of of thing that's going to come through the atmosphere and most of which i'm pretty sure will burn up though most things burn up when they come through the atmosphere unless they are precisely angled into it by very smart people yes right yes yeah so you're deliberately trying to not burn it yeah yeah and even then it has to be made (laughs) of very strong stuff not to burn up but yes no you're right it's um it there's a lot of concern about it well maybe there isn't but there's there's certainly some press concern about it whether that translates to real people being concerned about it we don't know um but the truth of it is there's a one in ten thousand chance that it will hit any person or property at all and whilst it does sound particularly scary for something that's up to i don't know probably seven eight thousand pounds of debris as you say most of it will get broken up into tiny pieces um most of it will therefore if it actually does get through it will be very small and most of it will burn up in the atmosphere as it comes through um just to sort of put it in context it's not the first time that something this big or bigger has made uh, uncontrolled because it mm. is uncontrolled we're not in control of it as it comes back down to earth yeah um entry into the earth's atmosphere in 2011 
uh, the launch of a Russian spacecraft intended for Mars failed, leaving the vehicle stranded in lower Earth orbit. Called beautifully Phobos Grunt. Um, <laughs> the, um, what an elegant name. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. Um, the, the spacecraft uh, weighed nearly 30,000 pounds and fell back to Earth in 2012 mm. uh, over the Pacific Ocean. And of course, that's the key. Most of Earth is oceans and most yeah. of space, space debris falls in the oceans. It does. I've also found um, in one of the articles that we read on The Verge uh, that a person's lifetime risk of being hit by re-entering space debris is about one in a trillion. Okay. So it's really low. There's a little bit of me that's disappointed about that. <laughs> I'd love to find a little bit of spaceship that had just come back. Yeah, it'd be nice to find and have, but not to get yeah. hit by. Do you know how many people have been hit by no, space how many? debris? One. In one person ever? Yes, the one per- in the 50 years of launching rockets, one person has been hit by space debris. Um, she was... Uh, a tiny piece of a Delta rocket brushed her shoulder when she was out for a she walk. She then immediately entered the lottery. Um, funnily enough, she's called Lottie Williams. Hey! So, what are the chances? <laughs> and <laughs> and um, so, uh, also, just as, a, as another piece of information here, Na- there's, NASA used to have a space station called mm. Skylab. It was mm. a forerunner to uh, International Space Station. And that made an uncontrolled re-entry. Uh, well, 160,000 pounds of it fell to Earth. Now, if that was really scary, do you think we'd all know that that had happened? And I, no. I bet the vast majority of people who are listening to this now did not, did not know, know that happened. That 160 yeah. pounds worth of spa- space debris had fallen back down to Earth. It's not going to make a big difference. It's a very, very small chance. So why is it that people are worried about it? I think... Like people do get really worried about things they can't control. So I think it's really important to notice the difference between, you know, smoking is very likely to kill you, um, but something falling from space hitting you at all in your lifetime is one in a trillion. And the difference between those two things and the way people perceive them as risk is the fact that you have full control over whether or not you smoke, whereas you don't have any control about what people put into space or how they re-enter. It's completely out of your hands. And the idea that it could hit someone like a child, um, that is someone vulnerable in society that you want to protect mm. um it's i think it's mostly the unknown aspect there's no way really to quantify one in a trillion in my mind i have no idea what that means it's just just very very low yes. so i'm not i don't think i could possibly imagine what one in a trillion even looks like mm. but it's it's kind of the fact that it's unknown and it's coming from a, an, a place space that we arguably still know quite a little little about mm. um that's that's what kind of uh, compounds the fear of it. I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I, I, you know, we do, we're not very good at risk, are we? I, I think no. there's a there's a classic tale that when there's an earthquake, we had one here in Bristol recently. Yeah. Um, what people tend to do is get in their cars and drive away, mm. whereas you are statistically far more likely to get hurt or killed in a car crash than you yeah. are from an earthquake. Yeah. So you're putting yourself in a much riskier situation than you are just staying there. But it's just our wish to be in control of the situation. Yeah, and it's the same with um, when there's been a, a plane crash or something like that. People will often turn to driving instead of flying because there's perceived less risk because you are the one driving the car you feel more in control of the situation and of yourself um where and like you said car crashes are are really quite frequent and people do die in car crashes quite or as a result of car crashes quite often um but plane crashes are really 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 rare Mm. especially now 
more yeah. recently. Actually, there's, it just made me think. This is completely a separate thing, really. But mm, it just made me think. You know, last week I was saying that I'd, uh, I, I'd switched to 100% renewable energy mm. on my uh, energies that I get from my house. Right? Yeah. So gas is 100% offset. The CO2 that I uh, that is caused by the gas that I use yeah. is 100% offset by the company. How do they do that? Um, various different ways. Okay. I can, but I kind of understand how that works. What I don't understand is 100% of the energy that, com- that I pay for is renewable. Yeah. So it's wind, sun and water. Yeah. Okay. There's... No nuclear in it, which mm-hmm. I think is a bit of a shame personally, but that's by, that's yeah. by the by. Um, but there's non, no fossil fuels that are powering mm-hmm. the energy that I'm paying for. But that's not the energy that's coming to my house, right? No, it's not. So you, when you turn on something in your house, you're just getting energy from the national grid. Um, but what you're paying for from your company is for them to buy on your behalf a certain amount of energy for you for the whole year from a supplier, uh, like a, a, an energy plant or a wind farm or, or something like that. And that gets fed into the grid for you. Um, but you're not necessarily using those exact molecules, yeah. those elect- that, that, that movement. It's that you're increasing the amount of renewable energy that is just fed into the grid anyway. Um, and the more people that sign up, the more... P- proportion of what's in the grid will be renewably generated energy um, but it's still all electricity that very much acts the same oh, yes, <laughs> it, doesn't, yes. it, doesn't, it doesn't behave differently on yeah. the grid if it's uh, from a renewable source or not yeah. Okay, so the, the sort of the act of me signing up for a company that does 100% renewable energy is the act in itself there is the point where I'm doing good for the planet. Where actually, for, to continue doing good for the planet on a daily basis, I need to use less energy in my house um, Yes Yes, you do. Okay. Um, <laughs> and also get as many people as you know to sign up to renewable energy, 100% green tariffs as well, because then there will be more in the grid that is renewable, um, supporting the people that are producing renewable energy as well. Okay. Well, there's lots of companies that do that. If yeah, you so many. Love and science, and you care about the future of the planet, or indeed the present of the planet, then do have a look for a renewable source for your energy. John Ford is with us. Hello, John. How hey, are you? John. Yeah, that that'll do that one there. Yeah, call yeah. yourself a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> I'm all right, thank you. Yeah, another interesting show today. Oh, thanks very it's much. It's always better without the other fellow, isn't it? Yeah. Well, welcome, yeah. do you the, think? Old, the old bloke. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do, uh, we like it when he's here because he sort of I does know. all the important stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's how all yeah. the things mm-hmm. work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> Have we missed anything out, John? Um, uh, you've missed a very really important birthday today. Oh, actually, no, it's, it's the birthday of the scientist John Albury. You know him, don't you? He was born born on this day in 1626. Uh, He was um, a philosopher and a scientist, an author and a biographer. But he is noted for rediscovering the prehistoric monument at Avebury in uh, 1649, which is a bit sciencey, isn't he? Um, He also drew attention to a handful of previously overlooked shadow depressions outside the perimeter of Stonehenge. Um, And this uh, phenomenon is known as the Albury Holes. Named after him. Have you ever uh, had a, come across an Albury Hull? I, I, I haven't. I don't know. It makes me think of that old cartoon. Do you remember with the little orange guy driving along and his car fell apart? You know? Fred Flintstone. No, no, it's called Albury. Until mob. Okay. Yeah, no, no, it's called Albury. Yeah. So you've got uh, you're taking Bristol. What, what do we call it? Uh, getting Bristol home. Get, getting Bristol home after four o'clock. After four Just o'clock. Just taking time. Okay.
Yeah. <laughs>